Welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Today's interview guest is Andy Markovitz, the popular University of Michigan professor and soccer book author, who's also a Manchester United fan, so that'll be interesting. We've had some great guests lately, including John Champion, Dermot McQuarrie, and Rob Harris. I also encourage you to check out my podcast series, American Prodigy, The Freddie Adu Story. You can binge all eight episodes now to your heart's content. But first, let's break down the soccer weekend with my friend Chris Whittingham, who you can hear on Univision, Inter-Miami Radio, The Dan Lebitard Show, and the Chelsea Miked Up podcast. Chris, thanks for joining me. How are you? Doing all right. Every soccer weekend brings its own turbulence, and this weekend was certainly no different. (laughs) You know, we're going to start off not talking about soccer on the field because the news of the weekend, Man United Liverpool postponed due to protests for Manchester United fans who got into Old Trafford, protested on the field, um, clashed a bit with police, and got a lot of attention. Um, Clearly angry at the Glazers, the owners of Manchester United, for a number of things over the years. Uh, Most recently, their desire to join the Super League. And... I guess the question for you is, as you were watching this unfold on Sunday, what were you thinking? Well, my, my primary thought is is that if the Manchester United fans had not invaded the stadium and had not created this, it would not have been talked about in iota as much. If it's just protests outside the stadium, I don't even think NBC breaks into coverage to report on it. There have been so many protests that have happened as a result of the Super League that... Protests are kind of now blasé in that respect. In terms of from, from a coverage standpoint, obviously to the to the supporters, it means a lot to kind of demonstrate your voice. So in some ways, protests are meant to create shock and awe. And I do kind of grapple with the notion of, well, if there is collateral damage inside the stadium, getting inside the dressing room to stewards that were there, I mean, obviously that is not welcome. But in some respects, I, I and I saw this great tweet, which was, um, I guess, you know, people were saying, well, this is what fan power would look like. And someone responded, no, this is what fan disenfranchisement looks like. And I think ultimately these people expressing their voices is them no longer wanting to be disenfranchised by a club that their, their fans tell you again and again and again, doesn't listen to us. And so ultimately, this was the fans attempting to seize the message for the day. Now, unfortunately, the things that happen, the thing that happens in these protests is that the message doesn't get heard. But I think it created enough of, uh, you know, obviously enough to lead this show, uh, but also just a headline around the world that now we're talking about the Glazers, we're talking about the Super League, we're talking about all these things that maybe it kind of faded out of the conversation once it seemed like the Super League was going away. Yeah, no, I think that's an interesting take. And I I think it's important to give a little context here about the history of Manchester United fans' dislike for the Glazers, who bought the team and did so leveraging a lot of debt that the team still has while the Glazers have taken money out of the team. Um, That's been an issue since... Sir Alex Ferguson was still the manager and they were still winning trophies. So this isn't just about Man United fans being angry they haven't won a big trophy in the Premier League or the Champions League since Sir Alex Ferguson left. Is that 
potentially a part of this? Yeah, sure. Dissatisfaction is high toward Arsenal owners. You can't you separate know. them, right? I mean, a, a financially kind of not as powerful organization is far less likely to win the Premier League or the Champions League as a result. Yeah, and so I think that's a, a major part of it. Um, dissatisfaction with the Glazers is nothing new. The Super League brought out a lot of anger, as we've seen over the last few weeks. Was this a bigger protest uh, overall than what we saw from Chelsea fans right after the Super League had been announced? Yes. It's also, I think, important to note, Manchester United may not be as, you know, what they used to be on the field, but it's still Manchester United, which is this global super club in a way that Chelsea actually still isn't. And so when it happens at Manchester United, when these images go out all over the world, when a game against Liverpool, their longtime arch rival, gets postponed, and, and okay, it wasn't maybe the biggest Man United-Liverpool game ever, but it was a pretty big game for Liverpool wanting yeah. to qualify for Champions League next year. And and so now, here we are opening our show talking about it. And, and Manchester United-Liverpool is still, I mean, even though Manchester United have not been towards the very top of the Premier League, look, they're in second, but uh, they, they haven't been towards the very top of the Premier League in quite some time. It's still probably the first fixture that if you're Sky or BT in the UK, it's the first fixture you want to put on television. You know, it in theory, I imagine if you're NBC, they haven't had it, but if you're NBC, it's the first fixture you want to make sure is on network NBC, is is kind of, you know, primarily focused on. It's still the biggest fixture in England. And as you said, I, do, I was thinking about this today because Manchester United has a status, right? Like, in, I, I kind of think of, like, the, the time – maybe around the Fox Soccer Channel. It's funny because you had Dermot McQuarrie on, who was kind of the builder of the Fox Soccer Channel. Around that time was kind of like the great race for international fans. And in some respects, the great race for international fans is kind of over. Because, you know, for example, clothing Manchester City came along. There aren't really that many global Manchester City fans. They're trying, but there aren't that many. It was really around the time when Manchester United were dominating the league, when Chelsea was coming up, and then obviously Liverpool is such a tradition. There's a lot of Spurs fans just because of the London connection and how uh, kind of big they are as well. And oh, I don't want to glory hunt, but... Manchester United was kind of synonymous in my kind of coming up in the game with global sport almost, global global football and global sport. When you say, oh, the, one of the big clubs in the world, like Manchester United, like that was the first club you'd mention, and it's just kind of not anymore. And I imagine as that has slowly degraded over time, fans have grown more weary with the ownership and the, the Super League was kind of financially meant to get them back to that place, but was also them saying, you know, we need something else in order to keep our status as one of these giant clubs, and the fans have just gotten sick of it and really wanted to have some kind of significant display in order to really show this to the world. So I don't know if you saw Jay Glazer's tweet, Jay Glazer, the terrific <laughs> NFL reporter for Fox, <laughs> and basically he puts out a tweet where I think he sort of had it with soccer Twitter coming yes. after him, and he's like, all you guys who think that I am the Glazer family from Tampa, I grew up in Brooklyn. I am not the Glazers who own Manchester United. I'm not selling the team because I don't own it. Leave me alone. Shakes fist at Sky. <laughs> and admittedly, it was kind of funny. But it also makes me wonder, is soccer Twitter the scariest sports Twitter? Because... <laughs> I, I, Mina Kimes actually from ESPN tweeted something uh, about a week and a half ago about 
it was around the Super League stuff. And she was basically like, I'm scared of soccer Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because, I, I mean, it has, uh, you know, the most tribalism, ferocity. I mean, my... Uh, my introduction to uh, X Twitter was Miami Heat Twitter in the in the LeBron uh, Big Three years, and we I say we because I was a part of it were ferocious back then. So I don't know if it's quite the same even still, uh, but yeah, I mean there's just so many facts, and when they all kind of get banded together around one issue like the Super League, look out. So yeah, soccer Twitter for sure would not want to stand in their way. Speaking of by the way, in terms of Twitter, I know a lot of people were participating in the social media blackout, but. Uh, Matt Doyle of MLSsoccer.com put together a really good thread because he didn't really know what there was so much anger about the Glazers for, and so did some reading. And actually, for people who don't know kind of what the Glazers situation is with Manchester United, I definitely check out that thread because a lot of good information there and some good links as well for other articles to read. Yeah, I, I would also say, and I, I tweeted something, uh, I tweeted his thing, but also um, uh, something from my end, which was, I support the good intentions behind the social media boycotts this weekend that were against abuse on social media platforms. And any individual person who did that, okay, I, I get it. But there were some like serious news organizations who said they were gonna do this social media blackout. And even leading into it, I was like, I don't think that's a good idea. What like these are serious news organizations. What if something major happens news-wise? Sure enough, yeah. This giant event happens at Old Trafford on Sunday and and I I just think it's strange that some major news organizations acted like nothing was happening because they had a boycott. <laughs> did you actually end up going to websites for the first time in a while? Like I actually did. I went to <laughs> skysports.com and read the top headline on Sky Sports. I don't think I've done that in years where it's right. like, I need to find news about something. The first one I was going to go is the news outlets website and clicked on, click on the first link. I mean, I was, you're kind of forced to do that today. And it's kind of funny because like you're saying, well, these major outlets are deplatforming themselves. And yet, they have a major platform, right? Which is like part of the reason why they have such a massive audience on social media. So it's funny how like when that platform is seemingly not enough because they're participating in the social media boycott. I do want to talk about some soccer here. Um, for me, Christian Pulisic scoring in the Champions League semifinals at Real Madrid, probably biggest club goal ever scored by an American that I can think of. What's second? I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, last year we saw Tyler Adams score to send Leipzig yeah. to the semifinals, but this was the semifinals of the biggest club competition in the world. Chelsea now at 1-1 heading into the return leg midweek at home, so advantage Chelsea. How do we see this return leg against Real Madrid? Well, my feeling from the first leg was that Chelsea were just so superior, right? And it is funny, like, how much of an anomaly that West Bromwich Albion result was. And I know, like, Chelsea fans bring that one up all the time because it is kind of like this weird... Where did that come from? Because every other result... I mean, even at the weekend, they played home against Fulham. Fulham were desperate. They needed to win. They're probably down now that they lost. If you look at, like, the expected goals from that one, Fulham mustered almost nothing. And most teams muster almost nothing against Chelsea. And by the way, I think that's Real Madrid included. That Kareem Benzema goal comes out of absolutely nowhere. And so Chelsea 
just need to probably get a goal or two, and they're there. Like, they're a really strong team. The exact opposite kind of team you want to play in a knockout competition because not only do they basically stop you from creating anything, but they're good on the ball. They're not doing so by parking the bus and just being frustrated to get around. No, they're, 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 they press, they're solid, they're defensive, and I would say it's probably an ideal team to have in a knockout competition. And so I have real confidence in them heading into the second leg that they can summon another similarly strong performance, keep Real Madrid at bay, and potentially go through the final. And if there's a bit of creative inspiration, honestly, right now, Christian Pulisic is top of the list in terms of players it would come from to maybe even add to Chelsea's aggregate lead in this tie. Someone on Twitter made a good point this week that Ever since they got out of the U.S. men's national team camp at the end of March, Christian Pulisic and Gio Reyna, who scored twice for Dortmund in the uh, uh, Pokal semi win over the weekend, have been completely different players. It's like they've been totally rejuvenated ever since that U.S. camp because before that, they were both struggling. And like, who knows if there's anything more than a coincidence there, but... It certainly is coincidental. And uh, in Pulisic, look, I, I want to see him have a season next year in which he produces week after week after week, doesn't get hurt, puts up goals and assist numbers. You know, he's the number 10 for Chelsea. So, like, you want to see that. But I'm also really impressed by how he has earned a starting spot in the games that matter most this season from Tuchel, who wasn't starting him for quite a while when he first got to Chelsea. And more than just starting, he's playing well, Pulisic, in these games. He's making a difference. And and to me, that tells you a lot about who he is kind of in his head, I think. And yeah. I think U.S. fans should be pretty excited about that. And I think as well, like you said, we as American fans – do sort of want this to be easy for these players. Easy in the sense of, you know that they're getting picked every week because then you can feel a sense of confidence before they go into the international camp. Oh, this is not just a guy who's at Chelsea. He's playing every week for Chelsea. This is a big part of Chelsea. There's no fear that he's going to go to a lesser club in order to kind of carry on his career. You know, right? You have certainty. But in some respects, as you said, coming through this is a sign of their mental fortitude. It's a sign as well of their connection to the national team because I agree with you. I don't, I, I don't think it's coincidental. Like, you're living in lockdown, life is hard. You're young. Your club situation's not going well. If you're Pulisic, you've been injured at times. You're struggling to find your place in the team. And you come into this environment where you're the guy. You're the best player in the team. The play is running through you. You're around a bunch of similarly aged guys who are all going through this ascent at the same time. That's to be kind of uplifting. And by the way, how cool, from a U.S. national team standpoint, that the national team can't be something of a refuge for a player. That, yeah, yeah, life is hard, but you come to the national team and things get better for you. That's got to be great if you're Greg Berhalter, to, even if you've kind of happened upon it by accident, although kind of throughout his career he seemed to have built those kind of environments. But even by accident that this environment has just kind of come about when the national team program, I, I imagine it used to be a slog for some of these guys. Oh, i got to go play for this team where everyone hates us and we're kind of playing these you know meaningless, rudderless games under Dave Sarakin, no fault of Dave Sarakin, but just like, you know, we're going nowhere fast. That I mean, I, I, I imagine that feeling has changed very quickly but yeah 
I, I do feel that Pulisic is getting to a great stage. And also, my feeling of encouragement would be, and I hope to God that we can see this, that he gets through not just the end of the club season, but the Nations League after the end of the club season healthy. There's no more injuries the rest of the way. He's not rehabbing during the summer. He finally gets a summer off after his move from Dortmund to Chelsea. He played at the Gold Cup, was injured last summer, and it, like the most abridged summer that a club can have. I would love to see him start anew next season in a preseason with Chelsea so he can build from the first day from a place of freshness. That would be such a huge achievement in my view, particularly heading into such a congested international fixture list at the start of next club season. I hope we see uh, Pulisic and Weston McKenney posting pictures from the beach in the Caribbean again yes. like they, they did maybe three seasons ago in the off season, because that would be a good sign if they're healthy, they have time to be out on the beach doing their thing. Um now, I want to ask you about the other semifinal in Champions League here. And if it's advantage Chelsea in the first one, it's advantage Man City in the second one after a complete meltdown by PSG in the second half uh, to be down 2-1 to one, heading back to City for the return leg. I don't want to say it was all a meltdown by PSG, but, it, you know, red card sloppy goals they let in and, and give credit to Man City for playing a very good second half away in Paris. Um, I, I, I find it interesting that Man City and Chelsea just played in a knockout tournament won by Chelsea uh, in the FA Cup semifinal. Is this shaping up really well for Chelsea? And, and are you expecting Man City to get through? I think that one is still a toss-up. Look, having two away goals is a great position, but you wouldn't be surprised if, I mean, Mbappe, who did absolutely nothing in the first leg, kind of emerges and has this kind of titanic performance. He's done it against City before, particularly at the Etihad for Monaco. So I'm not I'm not kind of ruling that one out. But yeah, I mean, City are in the driver's seat at the moment. But in terms of how things are shaping up for Chelsea, like, I don't think that Chelsea are going to face the same team that they did in that FA Cup semifinal. Because you have to remember... City are in the midst of trying to win a quadruple. That was kind of like the first really kind of mammoth clash. I mean, playing Dortmund. And they're in the middle of their Champions League as well. I think as much as City are trying to gobble up every trophy, the Champions League is still... I mean, it's been pretty clear. Like, I don't think we've ever seen this from Pep before where he fully committed to the Champions League in quite this way. He's tried to win it, but like would field the same team in the Premier League, would still field the same team in the Carabao and the FA Cup. And that FA Cup semifinal was really the first time where it's like, oh no, there's a first team in this side and there's a second team in this side. And I'm going to field the second team for this FA Cup semifinal. He fielded it at the weekend against Crystal Palace and it took them an hour to really get going. And that's really the first time we've seen Pep not only settle on a team, but settle on like, oh no, we're not going to adjust to the opponent. This is my best team and I'm going to beat Paris Saint-Germain with my best team and then they went and did it so in some ways it's not the overthinks that we've kind of become accustomed to and I think I can I can pick the team that Pep is going to send out in that second leg against PSG when you couldn't before it was always something crazy and so I do think that in terms of how it sets up for Chelsea like I, I don't think that if they played in a Champions League final it would look anything like the FA Cup semifinal you don't think Zach Saffin would start and go in the Champions League <laughs> no I don't <laughs> I don't think so <laughs> don't we're not we're not harshing on you Zach don't worry man uh, congrats <laughs> on that league cup um you know it's it's interesting to me uh, i think pep clearly has not sort of overthought things during this champions league run i think that's a good thing for city um kevin de bruyne can i just say this that when i see kevin de bruyne do post-game interviews after a champions league game that dude is one of the smartest 
most intelligent players I've seen. And I hope someday, if he's not coaching, he does television. And I kind of wish he had been in my book that came out a couple years ago where I, I talked with players who were not just world-class, but had are tremendously intelligent at explaining the craft of what they do. Am I, am I up? You know, on here, like, do you yeah. notice that when Kevin De Bruyne talks about the sport? Hundred percent. Like, I mean, as a, as an interview subject, he's incredible. And just you watch him play, and the things that obviously, like, has an incredible physical gift. Doesn't really look it like it doesn't look like some incre- incredible physical specimen. But every through ball is hit with exactly the right weight, and sometimes that weight is like impossibly heavy. Like he has an incredibly powerful right foot, which you wouldn't expect from a player like him. So he's got this ridiculous power and reads the game incredibly, has every right idea, every right through ball, and you can kind of see in the way that he plays kind of how that thought process is manifesting itself. But yeah, I mean, someone who probably knows a shedload of languages, right? Like he probably knows five languages, is incredibly salient and clear in English. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I kind of want to see him like break down the game from his perspective as either like a, an analyst on games or an analyst in the studio because he'd be amazing at it. I want to get him on the podcast at some point. Consider yeah. this a gauntlet throne. Um, other big news this week, Jesse Marsh, the American, will be the next coach at Leipzig next season after Julian Nagelsmann leaves for Bayern Munich. And this was an interesting one because it was, for me, less straightforward than I would have expected. I kind of thought that based on what Jesse Marsh, who won the Austrian Cup final over the weekend with uh, Brendan Aronson scoring in the final, I thought this was sort of an obvious thing. And apparently it was less obvious to some folks at Leipzig. (laughs) In fact, the sporting director, it sounds like, might be out because he wasn't a huge Marsh guy. Uh, He wanted the Wolfsburg coach. So uh, that to me is a really interesting one. What's your sense of the significance for American soccer uh, for Jesse Marsh to get uh, a job at a a team, the head job at a team that was a Champions League semifinalist last season? And and what were your thoughts on how it went down? Well, for me in terms of my my thoughts on like the job itself, he's really – in the highest position that an American has ever reached, just in terms of what is expected of the club. Leipzig right now, almost more than Dortmund, given how much they've struggled really since the beginning of the pandemic, Leipzig are the club that are the closest to catching Bayern, right? And that's a significant responsibility to place on the shoulders of an American who's only you know, been a head coach in Europe and Austria, right? So that's a massive leap for him to make. And if he does this well, can make the leap into coaching Really, he can write his ticket to manage in England, to manage anywhere, because, you know, Nagelsmann got a ton of press to be the Spurs manager, to be the Real Madrid manager. Like, this is a platform, right? So let's kind of recognize the size of that platform. In terms of, like, the the Red Bull politics, I really find that interesting because um, the athletic piece kind of mentioned just how much of a Red Bull man that he is, and you wonder if there's, like, one person within that structure that might object to him. The structure itself 
loves Jesse Marsh, and so he's just such a product of that Red Bull entity. Um, I also found interesting that Fabrizio Romano linked him to the Tottenham uh, job. Uh, like I thought that was fascinating that Spurs were kind of looking at him as a candidate, and that Marsh, who probably would have more of an affinity, kind of in theory, like as you know, growing up in soccer, to Spurs than to RB Leipzig, would kind of say, "No, I've, I need to be loyal to these people that have given me so much." So the fact that he had options was interesting, but as you mentioned, those internal politics are, are kind of fascinating, and now it kind of puts a little bit of pressure on him to deliver from day one. It's like, all right, well, there's people who've put their reputations on the line for you. You've got to go and deliver. And there's only so much, there's only so low they can go. He probably, I mean, at worst, finish fourth in the Bundesliga next year. But, uh, like, he's he's got to kind of lift them a level because they did kind of reach a ceiling, even with Nagelsmann, who's kind of perceived to be this amazing coach. Yeah, I think it's going to be a challenging job next season that comes with high expectations, as you say, because... Look at who they're. We already know they're selling Upa Meccano to Bayern Munich within the league. We, you know, great center back. We also know they're selling Konate to Liverpool. Um, and so that's going to make it a challenge to rebuild off of that. Yes, they're going to get Schobuschlei, who got sold in January from Salzburg and hasn't even played due to injury. Obviously, he, you know, Marsh got a lot out of him. Um, you know, he'll get to reunite with Tyler Adams. Sounds like uh, uh, Pat Zendaka might become the number nine, uh, who also has been at Salzburg. So there's a lot of going back and forth here. But for Jesse Marsh's sake, you have to hope that they spend a fair amount of this money that they're getting for the players that are going to be outgoing. And that includes Nagelsmann, who they got 30 million euros for. So, um We'll see how how they reload, but it is kind of, I don't want to say this in, in any negative way. It's kind of like a system quarterback in the NFL, like, like Red Bull has a system. And so yep. I do think part of that system, and they're used to it, even at Leipzig, at the pinnacle of the, the Red Bull pyramid, is still a selling club to some extent if you're selling to Liverpool and Bayern Munich. So... Um, very curious to follow that. I, I would love to do a book project just being inside that team for a season with Jesse Marsh and, and Tyler Adams. And I just am now convincing myself to go live in Germany for a year. <laughs> and, uh, and is Brendan Aronson on the way? He killed it at the weekend in the cup final. So, yeah, I mean, and that'll be interesting, right? Because that's another one where you kind of get that increased pressure and, oh, you're bringing Americans, you're bringing your guys in, you know? like And I think in some respects... Marsh is about to become the coaching Pulisic, is he not? Like, he's going to a big club, and it's kind of got to work for him so that other Americans coming from MLS can potentially get a go if they re- if Jim Curtin wants to take his career to Germany, which given how he coaches in a very German style here in, uh, in the United States would make some sense. Like, Jim Curtin going to Germany actually makes some sense to me. But Mar- I think Marsh has got to succeed here because Bob Bradley didn't, and... We'll see how Marsh gets on here because I do think if all of a sudden he works and maybe some other clubs are going, oh, let's look to America for coaches. Maybe they've they've got some smart tactical minds here, and that's a lot of pressure to put on someone. But based off the conversation that uh, you had with him and, and I was on that Zoom meeting for that, seems like something he really wants to take on. It seems like quite someone who's like, all right, bring it on, challenge, let's go. Yeah, I think it's going to be a lot of fun to watch, so I'm psyched for it. Uh, Want to stay in Europe for one more thing, Chelsea. And Barcelona qualifying for the Women's UEFA Champions League final, which takes place May 16th. These were actually both really good semifinals. Unfortunately, they overlapped a little bit due to some 
ridiculous scheduling by UEFA early on a Sunday morning. Scheduling. I mean, the, the television situation <laughs> as well. It was only available in in German on the like the Chelsea Bayern match, like on YouTube. Uh, I wonder if it was like part of the social media blackout, but uh, the the game was only available on YouTube from the Bayern side, so it was in German. I actually ended up finding on the Chelsea app, which I you know I know of because I work for the club, but I'm not sure that's like the first place you go to when you're looking <laughs> to find games, but. Man, the television situation. I know it changes next season with yeah. the, kind of the unif- uniformity of the tournament, but a bit rough to try and find this morning. True, but these were wild games and, yeah. and just really good games, good finishes, lots on the line late. Perneal Harder gets the late uh, decisive goal before they got an open net one at the end uh, for Chelsea. Um, and, and Bayern looked good in this game as well, so they have you know nothing to, to be upset about in terms of how they performed, I think. Uh, and then it was very back and forth, uh, Barcelona against PSG. And um, it's just interesting for me, you know, Lyon has been the powerhouse now for, you know, they've won the last five women's champions leagues. They won't this time. And yet you're seeing that uh, the women's game is getting more really good teams. And it's not to be, it's, it's not that it's unexpected, but like it's good to see. And so you hope that the way it's packaged will meet what we're actually watching now, which we have to find search a little too hard for. Yeah. I kind of love Emma Hayes, by the way. Like she is like her post game interviews are absolutely fantastic. Yeah. And R rated, but in a great way. <laughs> yeah, we uh, we had her on Chelsea Mic'd Up, and she was an absolute delight. Like what? And actually says she she actually had a really uh, interesting uh, kind of quote, which was, uh, "I was born in England, but I was made in America." Like she worked here in the American game for a few years, and and has taken a like basically. I tried to import the American mentality in the women's game into England. The I believe I can do anything. Um, and, and in some respects like that Nike commercial, anything you can do, I can do better is kind of like a really interesting, uh, look at the women's game because in some respects it, it really didn't exist, uh, of, like it kind of outside of Europe uh, or outside of the United States in the women's game. So the fact that that's kind of like one of our greatest exports is that mentality is cool, but yeah, she's brilliant. And you kind of mentioned like how Lyon dominating is kind of it, to me in some ways kind of homogenized the women's game in a weird way. It's like all right, well Lyon have their style, but like Barcelona becoming really good and doing it in the Barcelona way, right? right. I'd actually say in terms of like their level of success and the manner they express a style might even be might even be more Barcelona than oh, the yeah. men's team at this point. Yeah. And so like the fact that all these clubs are going about it in different ways now there's legitimate competition where it's not just one club owning the thing. It really kind of democratizes the. Entire Entire women's game in some respects. I also find it interesting that despite the American women being the best national team in the world, in the club game, even in Europe, at a time when there are quite a few U.S. women's national team players playing in it, they are not at the top of Champions League. And so I think the U.S. women's national team players should take this as a challenge, at least the ones who are there right now and maybe going over there. You got some work to do to get to the uh, yeah. top in the in the European club game, but I, I've really enjoyed the women's Champions League games this year. Looking forward to the final. Somebody um, put it on television, please. I mean, it's got to be somewhere. It's the final, but like, it's crazy that we don't kind of know where it's going to be. Honestly, it's absurd when you when you consider like how well like the WSL have done to get a really good TV deal with NBC. Like the fact that the champ the Champions League. Like wasn't right. on this a while ago. Basically, lets the clubs handle their own rights. 
preposterous. So a couple more things I want to ask uh, you about. One is just MLS weekend, lots of games. We're recording this around 6 p.m. Eastern on Sunday, so we're not going to get to the Galaxy game later tonight uh, against Seattle. Galaxy obviously off to a great start with Chicharito uh, the first two weeks. We'll see if they can continue that. But I want to say this. I love Cade Cowell and Caden Clark, the guys who I keep mixing up, but they're both teenagers. Cade Cowell is with San Jose. Caden Clark is with Red Bull New York. They both scored terrific goals again this weekend and have me very excited about their futures. Cade Cowell, I, I saw him uh, match day two on the Univision through the NA game. And the thing that most kind of sticks out to me is like, like Caden Clark is, is playing well. He still kind of looks like a kid. Cade Cowell looks like a man. He's 17 He's years old. And yeah. like threw around Tim Parker on match day one. Got into another, <laughs> uh, I think it was with Matt Hedges of FC Dallas. Like, and, and can throw his weight around. And the way that he takes his goal is incredibly impressive. But one of the things I saw, I am referencing Matt Doyle for a second time. The way that he, for in the match against FC Dallas, picks out this ridiculous through ball for Christian Espinosa. Yeah. And then in this match at the weekend against DC United, picks out another cross, perfectly loops onto the header of, I believe, Jackson Ewell for the fourth San Jose goal. A creative standpoint. And like, San Jose needs this. Like, they don't really, like, they don't have a great striker outside of him. I think he's going to be their week-in, week-out starter at 17. And if he hits for 15, 20 goals as a 17-year-old, like, look out in terms of ceiling, look out in terms of national team, look out in terms of European sales. I'm fascinated by the Cade Cowell development. Coming from a club that doesn't hasn't really developed that many young players into, like, kind of being at this level. So for San Jose, I mean, what a win for them. Matias Almeida seems to love him, too. And yeah. He's giving him opportunities to play and... And there's a little bit of similarity between Cal and Daryl DK in that these guys are, they're big guys. Yeah. And yet they can also move, they're nimble, they can pass the ball as well. It's just so exciting right now. And it's hard for me to believe that Cade Cal's 17, but if, you know, if they tell me he is, then, then okay. Caden Clark, you're right, not as physically you know, large, but just scores these terrific volleys. It seems like almost every week now, he's just 18, um, really seems to enjoy the game, uh, real competitor, and he works his butt off too. And and it's just, it's pretty neat, the stage that MLS is in right now, where uh, there's quite a few of these teenagers, but right now they're sort of leading the pack for me. And, and it always makes me think back to the old, Saturday Night Live skit, Dermot Mulroney or Dylan McDermott, Cade Cal <laughs> or Caden Clark. They kind of look alike sometimes if you just get a headshot. Um, so that will be an ongoing story. The other thing I want to talk to you about is CCL, CONCACAF Champions League, return legs in the quarterfinals coming this Tuesday and Wednesday. We were excited about five MLS teams getting in the final eight, but now it's looking like maybe only one MLS team getting to the final four. Philly's up 3-0 on Atlanta. Obviously, one MLS team has to emerge from that one, but were you slightly disappointed with what happened midweek? Um, not this. I mean, we're talking about the very giants of Mexican football here, right? I mean... And even still, like I think the the, the home teams are able to ex- express themselves, right? They still played reasonably well. The, the thing that you really kind of get smacked here with is just how difficult it is for these teams so early in the season. They're almost all struggling with health, 
with fitness, with the fixture congestion. Even Philly at the weekend losing again. They didn't lose at home the entire of the entirety of 2020. They've already lost twice at home to NYCFC and to Inter Miami. Atlanta is struggling either side of the Champions League. Um, it's hard. Columbus right now is ravaged by injuries. Toronto is ravaged by injuries. So it just comes at a really difficult time. In terms of my level of optimism for these clubs, I would have said Columbus have a chance, but without Jonathan Mensah, that's a really tough ask. Like the drop-off to Abubakar Keita has clearly proven to be difficult for them. They didn't muster a shot on target against Montreal. And on top of that, they're away in Fort Lauderdale on a Saturday afternoon taking on Montreal, having to play a full 90 minutes with whatever the best team they can feel was. I live in Fort Lauderdale. I'm here on May the 1st, and an afternoon kickoff seems miserable. So it's only going to be even worse than heading back to a Wednesday uh, second leg away at Monterrey. Um, I think it's going to be really tough for one of these teams to turn around. If you believe that any team can do it, it would be Columbus just because of the sheer volume of their talent. But then they have Lucas Elorea now because of yellow card accumulation. So uh, it's going to be a really difficult challenge for any of these clubs. I got to say, though, I did enjoy the end of the uh, Portland Club America game where Mayor Paulson, the owner of Portland, was caught like in the replay <laughs> of the late penalty, just like thrusting his arm, at, at, you know, at, uh, asking for the penalty right on the yeah. boards behind the goal. I like it when MLS owners get engaged like that, but I think it's going to be a, a bit of a challenge for Portland in the return leg at altitude. We'll see what happens on that one. By the way, I just want to let you know, I really enjoy the way you roll your R's on... I, I'm terrible at it. Monterrey. Monterrey. Yeah, I was actually I was doing it with... Uh, we were before the, in the build-up to... Uh, Inter Miami and Nashville SC. I was working with Thomas Rungan on rolling his R's. We couldn't get there. Our producer's last name is Aguirre. And so uh, and so he was Aguirre. No, Aguirre. Like we were doing it back and forth and he he, he couldn't get the, the Dutch accent does not work for that. But uh, yeah, it's it's one of my talents, I guess. I actually do. I speak Spanish okay, but I've always had trouble with rolling my R's because even when I try it, I start to sort of spit and lose control. And yeah. And, and yeah. then I'm like not sounding good. There, there's, a ce- there's a ceiling on mine as well. Like, for example, I really struggle <laughs> with the uh, former Mexican interna- international Gerardo Torrado. Like that, that's a really tough, there's way too many R's in that name to, to really get it. it. would like, you're trying, I was doing like an Indy 11 game and he played for Indy 11, like his last season mm-hmm. of his career. And like, it was really hard to talk normally as I am now. And, <laughs> and now on the ball, Gerardo Torrado, and uh, he passes the ball. And like, it's so difficult to like break your train of thought to roll some R's. On that note, always great to talk <laughs> soccer with you, Chris Whittingham. Have a good week. Thanks, Grant. Let's take a quick break, and I'll ask you a question. Do you ever want to watch Spain's La Liga and France's Ligue 1, currently the best title races in Europe, and get frustrated because they're not available on your cable or satellite system? You should try a streaming service I use that I love. It's called Fanatis, and you can watch all the action from La Liga, Ligue 1, Copa Libertadores, and other international leagues and tournaments live and on demand from your favorite device, whether it's a mobile phone, a tablet, or directly on your TV with the Fanatis app. You can also watch top leagues from Austria, Turkey, Brazil, and Argentina. Fanatis features channels you know, like being sports and English and Spanish, the Women's Soccer Channel, ATA Football, Goal TV, and many more. And it costs as little as $7.99 a month. 
If you'd like to try Fanatis for yourself, you can get a free week-long trial by clicking on the link in the episode description or by going to fntz.co slash grant hyphen fz. Thank you very much to Fanatis for sponsoring this episode. Fanatis, the world's largest stadium. Now, here's my interview with Andy Markovitz. Our guest now is one of my favorite people in the soccer world. Andy Markovitz is a very popular professor at the University of Michigan who has written a lot of books that aren't about soccer, but he also has written several that are, including the classic Offside Soccer and American Exceptionalism, Born in Romania, emigrated to Vienna and New York City, huge fan of the Grateful Dead and Manchester United and Dogs, husband to his wonderful wife, Kiki. Andy, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. It's a delight. It is so wonderful to see you. It's been a little while. We were just catching up before we started recording, but um, I want to have a free-form conversation here because those are the best kind, especially with you. I miss seeing you on your visits to New York where we would get together and have breakfast somewhere and, and catch up on things. Um, and if we were to have that, we would probably be talking about the Super League. And yeah. I know you've got thoughts about what this means, what it represents. People should read your book soccer and American exceptionalism offside because it is a classic that actually I, I had friends on Twitter, like my friend, Charlie Bohm, actually they referenced your book and, and said, you know, this past week that they thought it had a lot to offer about the super league. Um, wow. so Very nice. that's, that's always good. But what are your thoughts about this 48 hour super league and its implosion? Oh God. Uh, do we have five hours? Um, <laughs> I mean, uh, just many thoughts. Number one, how horribly it was pulled off. Um, number two, um, how in many ways it's also, it, it was inevitable. We can talk about, we can then unpack each one of these. Mm -hmm. uh, number three, um, how ultimately, even though soccer is a totally global thing, it's a global product, its authenticity is defined completely by the local. And in other words, it was very clear that um, fans from uh, two, two miles away from Anfield or wh whatever they were, uh, Liverpool fans uh, in that area uh, were the ones who carried this. And Liverpool fans in Santa Cruz, California or in China or whatever, who might as well who could easily be as committed and as important and as knowledgeable just didn't count. So what really drove this home to me is that actually it's not only as Roland Robertson, a great uh, Robertson, a great uh, Scottish uh, sports sociologist, coined the term "glocal," and in some ways it's really not even global; it's local. And in fact, all of sports, uh, authenticity is local. And I always, that also struck me as, as very profound in this, in, in this whole endeavor. How ultimately sports fans um, and uh, the most committed, which are in the, the realm of what I call, if you start, if, if you look at fandom as sort of as a five circle thing, it starts out with awareness, okay? And then it goes into, 
um, affection, and then it goes into allegiance, and then it goes into uh, association or association allegiance. I actually, this is kind of known in sports sociology, but I also added one more that I call affliction and addiction. Okay. And those are the real, and that's me. In other words, those are the crazies. <laughs> and affliction and addiction um, is ultimately not only uh, immensely parochial and immensely tribal, but also completely sort of anti any change. And this is, mm. by the way, all sports, not only soccer. I have friends, I'm not kidding you. I have a friend who once I took him to a Tigers game, not so long ago, four or five years ago, he said, well, and he wasn't joking. He said, you know, um, well, AL baseball is not real baseball. And I said, do you mean to say because they have the DH? He said, yes. I said, Jesus, this is 50 years ago. I mean, what are you doing? And he wasn't kidding. He was really serious that this is sort of, it really uh, violates a holy thing. And this was so obvious in this whole, uh, in this whole mess. What I lastly also was so amazed by is the power of this local fandom that literally it toppled the global forces. And, and I, I've never seen anything like this, uh, how literally the local fans toppled uh, the 12 mightiest clubs, you could argue, um, who put together a horrible thing. <laughs> of course, aided by one thing which I really always disliked about soccer, namely its Catholic organization, meaning it's like the Catholic Church uh, since 1904. And uh, uh, basically, it has a very clear pyramid uh, organization. And if you uh, deviate from it, you actually are excommunicated. And you don't like that? Actually, I don't. And we can get into that. But um, I, 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 and I'm very happy because uh, about uh, sort of my predictive powers because the, the German newspaper interviewed me on Monday, and I, uh, and the uh, the title of the thing that appeared on Tuesday was FIFA will be will prove victorious, and uh -huh. I, I knew that this had to fail by the simple thing that what is so important to every soccer player and every you it's part of the culture is that it's club and country. And yeah. if you exclude country, you excommunicate the players from country, it's over. And as long as that is so important to all players, it's important for, I mean, not for money. I mean, Ronaldo doesn't need, but it's very important for him to wear the Portugal shirt and right. for Messi to wear the Albi Celeste. This is important to them. It's actually a bane of his existence. There's still some people who argue that Messi cannot be the greatest because he hasn't won a World Cup. This is insane, but uh, that's another topic. Um, but so as long as that is the case, I knew that this had to fail. And um, basically it, it was a very interesting thing how globalization and globalized capitalism failed to local, and feudal, feudal as in F-E-U-D-A-L, feudal mm. organization called FIFA, which is actually a pre-capitalist <laughs> entity of what is known as a para-public uh, organization that has powers of phenomena of monopoly and actually yeah. jurisdiction, and thereby can literally create, create a situation where the best players of them all could not play in something that is important to them.
end of story, goodbye, goodbye Glazers, goodbye all of them, it's over. <laughs> and this is, by the way, so different to American sports. The difference is not only that it's not, that American leagues are closed. By the way, even what also struck me is so much nonsense that was spoken afterwards on both sides. I mean, someone as brilliant as Pep Guardiola, whom I really respect, to say something like, you know, to him, there's, if there's no competition, it's not a sport. I mean, that's just silly. I mean, does the NBA have no competition or the NFL have no competition? It's no competition if you lose or if you can't lose or something, or you can't yeah, drop down. Like, you know, that's right. If, 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 it's no competition if, if, if you can't lose. I mean, uh, excuse me. I mean, that was, I am with the, 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 the the the, the the craziness that was spoken on, on, on both sides was sort of disappointing. And you can then talk also about the xenophobia. But, um, but anyway, it was very clear that unlike in the United States, where they're actually where playing for the national team is not important in the big four. It just isn't. I mean, right. in football, it doesn't exist. In baseball, it's really, I mean, no one cares about the world classic, uh, which is played before a season. In the in basketball, yes, every four years to play on the Olympic team, it's nice, but it's not it's not a compelling thing. And I would argue even in hockey, um, to the Canadians, which is after all, it is very important to beat the 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 formerly, of course, the Soviets, to beat the Russians, and to beat right. the Americans. But it's I would still argue that the club side namely the Stanley Cup, that the internal thing is much more important to a Canadian player. If you were to say, look, you can't play for the Canadian national team if this and this happens, I would probably assume that to most, it would be okay. In other words, it's just not part of these sports cultures, whereas soccer it is. And FIFA had an unbelievable veto power here. And so it was over. So I'm interested in why you actually sound like you don't necessarily like the hundred-year-old pyramid, which you call very Catholic in in European soccer. Obviously, here in the oh. U.S., we have a, a hundred-year history of not having promotion and relegation in our sports, but how, where do you stand on all this? I, I, tell you, I tell you why. I, I mean, I like the pyramid of soccer very much in terms of the domestic leagues. In other words, where you, and that was also horrible that this closed league, I would have not... I wouldn't have, here's my ideal situation. Had this really been done wisely and had you actually have 24 teams, uh, not only 12, but really across the board and had you had some form of provision where every year four in fact get relegated and four advance and you have a serious B league, in other words, uh, like from the Europa League, a second tier, Europe is small. Why shouldn't there be, why should there be these national leagues? and? You know, my German friends, many of them said the Bundesliga is like this. I mean, the Bundesliga was the region. So now it's a, why shouldn't Europe have a league? In, in and of itself, this is, there's nothing wrong with this. Uh, a flight from Moscow to, to Lisbon, uh, pretty much on the other side of the continent, are still, it was only, I think, four hours. It's less than across the U.S. So there's nothing inherently wrong with creating a European league. But by creating it so haphazardly and without having any kind of pyramid in it, that was the point, I really opposed it. Now, what I don't like is that the pyramid is also completely global, meaning that it literally has, there's a pope, um, you know, uh, 
the FIFA president and IFAB are the Pope, are the, are the, are the, are the papacy. They are the ones who de decide what is Catholic. And if you are not, you actually are excommunicated. And by the way, um, lest we forget, this is one of the reasons why, in fact, in the United States, soccer was ultimately failed. Um, in the 1920s, the ASL was a very, very good league and more popular than the fledgling NFL. And the reason it failed was precisely by virtue of this tense and the, the, the conflict between league and association or the, the you know, the, 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 the non-capital, the feudal thing, the association, which invoked FIFA and FIFA banned the ASL. It actually created it, made it an outlaw league, meaning all its players were renegades, all its players were excommunicated, none of its records counted. And this split up American soccer and ruined it. Um, so uh, there is, so I actually find any kind of monopolistic power like this, there maybe I'm just too much of an anarchist, if you will. <laughs> I just find that too, um, too powerful. And by the way, also immensely corrupting. Yeah. Um, it gives a form of, you have no, you have literally no countervailing argument. You have no exit option. Um, the great Harvard political economist, uh, Albert Hirschman looked at everything called exit voice and loyalty and uh, just uh, on how you look at any social action. I'm a big believer in this. And basically with soccer, there's only a loyalty option, which is huge and occasional voice option, but mm -hmm. never an exit option. And um, I think that there should be some exit options in anything. And, um, except not as failed as this one, in which, which in fact completely killed it because the exit option was good for 48 hours. But, um, but there should be some form of, of, of countervailing. Uh, and I understand that the danger of, of it being not Catholic, but Protestant or Orthodox, if you choose your religion, is of course what happened to the other football codes. Namely the rugby codes all became Protestant. And you, of course, have by now, you literally create different games. You rugby union becomes rugby league, uh, Aussie, Aussie rules, on and on and on. So they actually become their own codes and their own sports. And that's the danger of not being Catholic. The danger of pluralism is that you actually, that the exit option is so big that in fact it exits, literally. <laughs> And this there's party. no then there's no valence in any kind of loyalty or voice. You just say, I'm exit, goodbye, gone. So I understand that. But somehow the the, the FIFA's uh, uh, lording over this amazing good is somehow um, always rubbed me the wrong way. And it has this by virtue of country, not by virtue of club. By virtue of club, it actually is not powerful. By virtue of club. What is it? Would have been these 24 or whatever, 12 teams. That's the club part. But it's the country part that makes FIFA powerful. And as long as soccer players, this is their culture, it will remain an unbelievable veto power. And yeah. So, in terms of the incompetence of this Super League rollout, because that's what it was, they, they certainly did not handle it well. It crumbled within two days. Is this one of those situations where, and I 
couple of years, if they actually have their stuff together and, and roll it out much smart, you know, with much more, you know, much more smartly, um, that this could happen? Or do you yes. think this is dead? No, I think I actually, I totally agree with you. I think this was an impetus to something. I have no idea how long, but um, look, I mean, there is a, already a European league, really. Champions um, League. The Champions League. And there's a European B League, which is the Europa League. Um, I mean, look, uh, I, I have friends in Munich, and to them, the German championship is nothing. It's like whole hum. Their, their season is gone. Bayern is out, and it's just, you know, it's like winning, you know, the Michigan championship. Or something. <laughs> it's, a, it's a regional thing. They don't care. So, in fact, um, Europe has indeed become massively a huge cultural presence in this. It is, there is a European, there's the Euro, there's a European national anthem, although of course we would know words, it's Beethoven 9th. Okay, I understand that, but you know, there's all this. In fact, there is a European-wide everything. It's really not a federation yet, it's a confederation, um, but it is growing into way after my, after I leave this earth, but I'm sure that in the next 30 to 40 to 50 years, this in fact will become a basically a federation, not a confederation now. And so I don't see why there shouldn't be a European league, which by the way means that in, at some point there should also be a European national team. Oh, wow. Uh, so, there, you know, following this logic, there should be a European national team, okay? And um, uh, I actually don't see why this is not an impetus to uh, creating a system in which you have a European league, but with relegation and promotion. Meaning that every, every year, every season, four others from the B league, which may be now party regional, but you can organize this. I mean, maybe some small countries I've been thinking about, for example, how the Bundesliga may be split up and actually it becomes the Bavarian League also includes now Austria or, I mean, all of this is possible. I mean, it's, why not? This is, why should, why should, I mean, look, states change all the time. And why should there not, why should this, why should this be driven by a logic of nation state that was created, let's say, post-World War II and really started with L'Equipe's uh, a, a, a product called the, the, the European Champions Cup in 1956. I mean, why should, and by the way, that too is, was a very revolutionary thing. And by, by the, the way, way I, I am on the North Macedonia train for the Euro, but because like these guys, you know, fairly new country, qualified for the Euro, beat Germany in World yes, Cup qualifying yes, recently. Yes. So that is my new favorite team, North Macedonia. I, I agree with you. But I mean, so who would have thought this? And look at all these post-Yugoslav teams. I mean, it was all right. Yugoslavia. It's not or all the post-Soviet teams. So why should there, these things are fluid. Why shouldn't there be a counter-fluidity, which in fact, in this case, is not centrifugality, but centripetality, in fact, creating a common thing, which is, uh, which could in fact be done. And, and I, and there clearly are forces towards that. And, you know, not, not, not done this way. 
Um, what also really bothered me is, of course, the the immense sort of again what I started out with the immense uh, uh, tribal and almost uh, you know local thing, which was so counter cosmopolitan. It was really um, partly you know xenophobic, uh, obviously anti American. Um, you know, the hatred, it was just, uh, and it actually reminded me a little bit just the street scenes of very much of something that has really upset me very deeply, Brexit. Um, I haven't done the studies, but I would venture the hypothesis as a social scientist that among those that, that demonstrated the loudest uh, in Liverpool, Manchester, and London, uh, I would think that the percentage of Brexit supporters was much higher uh, than those that were for stay. Uh, just my hypothesis would be interesting to go out and study it uh, because it really is a form of, of sticking with the old. And I actually think the old is worth saving, but you've got to also transcend some of it. So in and of itself, not every change is bad introducing a designated hitter is not, doesn't end the game. Um, introducing new things in soccer, I think is fine, such as maybe even a new European league. Interesting. I, for, from my perspective, it seemed like it crossed the political spectrum, the resistance, at least in England, to the Super League. Because on the one hand, you had Boris Johnson coming out against it publicly. But I do think there is a sort of lefty anti-billionaire group that came out against yeah, really? it as, as well. Really? Tell me about this lefty anti-billionaire group. <laughs> uh, the same lefty anti-billionaire group where they, uh, last time I looked and Liverpool had its amazing season, I didn't see them demonstrating against uh, uh, the Fenway group. I wanted to demonstrate because I hate the bastards and I hate the Red Sox even more. But I'm sorry. I, I yes, but that's, I disagree. It was a form, they hated these millionaires. And that is also very interesting to look at. Uh, it was clearly directed against American billionaires. Definitely, now, that was part of it, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and that is actually uh, very clear because of course, in many ways, um, it's sort of not a soccer country. That's the point. And it really fits beautifully with my colleague, uh, Stefan Szymanski's book about the word soccer and how soccer, the word soccer has become this absolute shimpfort, this absolute pejorative term in British English. It's actually, it's, it's, it's a which it wasn't. It was actually part, it was used as a synonym for football. Yep. Not as frequently, but it was part of it. And I remember even it, it, at Old Trafford, uh, in the Holy of Holies, when uh, just in the monument uh, 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 commemorating the Munich disaster, there is actually in the text of it, there is the word soccer appears in it. Okay, so clearly this was part of a part of English, uh, apart from it being an English slang term for association, an Oxbridge slang term, it was actually an English word. And now it has become this absolutely disdained thing. It's the most hated word, according to Stefan. 
And this has everything to do with sort of America being close, but not the real thing. It's a very, it's actually a form of clear distinction, which veers towards hatred. And as Stefan correctly argues, um, precisely at the time when the Yanks are finally starting to make noise in soccer, when in fact we are moving from periphery to semi-periphery, we're still not the core to use dependencia theory here. Core, you know, we are, the core is still the big four or five in Europe, but in fact, we're moving towards it and we have a Pulisic and we have, you know, all of these, we're starting to enter it. And it's in this juncture that in England, um, this is seen as a particularly heinous attack on this holy of holies, on this local tribal thing. And it is by Americans who are not part of soccer culture and who are in fact seen as um, um, disdainful towards it, okay? And um, so I find it very interesting that um, the hatred towards the Americans was much higher than towards a Russian slash Israeli Jewish billionaire and an Arab billionaire. Uh, um, of course, having a lot to do with the fact that in this, in both of these cases, these guys really transformed formerly mediocre clubs or even subpar clubs to the giants that they've become. So again, I'd be very careful to argue that people of the left, uh, I mean, maybe of the left, yes, but not real soccer fans, guardian readers, absolutely. <laughs> but the people who were demonstrating were not there because they disdain capitalism. Just ask these very same people whether they would be interested in forming any kind of salary cap for their teams. <laughs> Just ask them this, okay? You know, let's uh, let's have a little bit of socialism here, NFL-style socialism, way beyond so social democracy, socialism, maybe even communism. Okay, are you up for this Manchester United? Are you up for this Manchester City? Well, we in fact are now cutting and you're making it very clear that everybody has the same budget. I don't think these guys would be agreeable, agreeable to this kind of socialism. This is where it got interesting in what the Super League did announce though. They didn't announce much, but, and they certainly didn't go into any detail on this, but they did indicate that there would, would have been some sort of salary cap, at least a on in turn for the super league teams at least in terms of percentage of revenue they would be allowed to spend yes. a percentage of revenue on on players so it's a form of a cap but it's not a total cap because they as long as they can increase their revenues right they can right. increase their spending no, no, I think, um, uh, I, I think uh, Rory Smith uh, wrote, I think, a very good uh, piece about what the different factions in here had their interest. And I think one of them, and I, told, I agree with him, is that the, I think the, the American faction, so to speak, uh, really carried the American experience and was very much, uh, very much interested in creating some kind of a cost-saving entity to which, by the way, uh, if I get his article correctly here, he thought that the, um, the, the the Spaniards linked up to this because, in fact, he worried. He thought he Smith thinks that Real Madrid and Barcelona are terrified by the you know limitless 
spending of the likes of Chelsea and City. In other words, that they, they understand that they can't quite follow this, okay? And so that they too were linked up with the American cost cutting or sort of cap or socialist, okay? Or kind of a, a, a NFL style um, revenue sharing or whatever you want to call it, which of course doesn't exist in soccer. Um, and to me, um, you know, I think that was a, potentially on the agenda. Uh, uh, but what I'm, I'm, I'm saying here is that I don't think that some of these, this was all in response to your question that it was also the left. Um, the left is correct, uh, left intellectuals, uh, you know, and uh, analyzing this at the LSE or, or writing in the Guardian, but the, the people who demonstrated and burned American flags, I don't think that was their main issue. The main issue was the fact that these are Yanks, these are hence uncouth, uh, to use my book, Uncouth Nation, about European anti-Americanism. They are uncouth. There was a, a Liverpool slogan I saw, um, uh, the spirit of shanks, not dirty yanks or something. Uh, <laughs> no, the spirit of Bill Shankly, um, the great Liverpool uh, manager. Um, and uh, so I, I think it was a form of disdain towards Americans not being part of the soccer world not being part of this culture. And that, that was it, it was not only, so that, that the, all of these guys are in, owning other things and this was a side thing to them. Unlike, I think, to Abramovich, to whom this may also be a side thing, but he, it's like a side thing with owning boats or whatever, but he doesn't, <laughs> I, at least as I know, I don't think he owns other teams or, so clearly this is his, and it's, it's he's not, he's not, for him, it's a form of, clearly a form of distinction. It's basically jewelry. I mean, he clearly, he doesn't care about, um, you know, making money on it the way right, apparently right. the Americans do it to some degree. Okay. Right. Um, to, him it's a, to him, it's a clear ornament. And, and the same with city, it's an ornament. Um, and it's a museum, it's an ornament, it's an opera. It has nothing to, it's not a capitalist entity. It's there for literally for, for demonstrative purposes. And I think that's why the, the wrath against them, even though, of course, Chelsea fans also demonstrated, to be sure. In fact, they were the first, uh, but was not as pronounced, at least from what I could see from here. So you are a Manchester United fan, um, Man United owned by the Glazers, owners also of the current Super Bowl winning Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Uh, I presume they're loved by Tampa fans much more than they are by Man United fans at this point. Um, where do you see Man United as a club? Obviously, in this very moment, they are going to likely finish second in the Premier League. They're still alive in Europa League, in the semis. But they're not alive in Champions League. They actually didn't get out of the group stage this year. Um, where is Man United at this point in your Opinion. I I thought you're a dear friend. Why are you asking such a, <laughs> a, a sore topic? It's horrible. Um, look, uh, made worse by the fact that your two bitterest rivals have had their star years. Uh, to me personally, because I'm of that age, somehow City are still are nowhere close to as painful as Liverpool because 
all my life city were didn't exist or they were not even noisy neighbors they were just nothing um and so in fact they're to me still kind of nouveau riche and and not uh, I, I don't see them as a threat although of course i should because uh, they're superb and they're they're brilliant and um look um uh, i mean uh, here i uh, this is the fan talking not the the analyst or the sociologist uh, the fan is exactly, I'm very upset about the Glazers, and I hope that maybe this makes them feel guilty that they should plow into the United billions of dollars so that we can buy buy up everybody and, in fact, you know, compete and, and um, not worry about, uh, you know, just outspend them. Uh, that's sort of my hope because, of course, the only thing that matters is trophies. Um, you know, and for United to have the last trophies in 2017, if I'm, I think, correct. Europa League? Europa that... League and the, and, the, uh, and the League Cup. Okay. It was the last, uh, last one with Jose. Um, I mean, that's fine. It's okay. Uh, both with uh, wonderful Ibrahimovic, whom I, the lion, whom I find is a fascinating guy. Uh, but this is just not enough. And, you know, because fans, and I'm, again, remember, I'm on the pinnacle of this uh, five-ring fandom. I'm in the affliction, addiction part. Um, fans are insatiable. Um, it's, it's, there is, it's really a thought about this. I mean, I thought a lot about that really fans of this ilk are basically exhibit in many ways fascistic personalities. They're intolerant. <laughs> Uh, true, they're intolerant. They're disdainful of the weak. They are. I mean, it's everything. I'm, I really notice it's everything that I'm not in my right. normal life. I, I mean, everything giving, inclusive, whatever. I'm not. I'm vindictive. I am. I am uh, 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 full of Schadenfreude. I mean, uh, Schadenfreude. It, it's maybe as great for me occasionally to see Liverpool lose than United win. <laughs> You sound like George uh, Costanza. <laughs> yes, exactly. So, in fact, part of me thinks that, um, you know, that being a fan of this ilk, namely of the affliction addiction stage, is actually a very ugly thing. And, um, you know, and it's a, it's a very narrow, but it's because it's totally uh, identifying, self-identifying with the team. If the team loses, it's a slight on your own person. Uh, there are lots of studies in sociology that shows that when a team wins, immediately fans uh, um, pluralize. It's, it's like we won immediately. A great study at Michigan of Michigan students when Michigan win, it's we win. No, you didn't. <laughs> you said, what are you talking about? Win? And when we lose, it's they. It's a very clear thing. So um, it's a very, uh, it's, a, it's a fascinating passion. Uh, which ultimately, as I just read a wonderful book by uh, Larry Olmsted called Fans, just a new book that I really recommend about how fandom and sports fandom uh, makes us so much better in terms of everything, our cognitive development, how we are much more enlightened. Huh. I mean, it's fascinating. In other words, he actually thinks that someone like me is, you know, I, I, you know, thrive by virtue of being a sports fan. I think he probably would say I'm a successful professor because I'm an insane sports fan. Um, but it's a wonderful book, very, very enlightening. And he actually argues that 
um, fandom is inclusive and even in its exclusivity, it is actually, to use uh, uh, Robert Putnam's great distinction of bridging and bonding capital, that even though it's all about bonding capital, so you bond with the United fans, actually there's an immense bridging capital. In this case, the game of soccer. In other words, that yes, I hate Liverpool, but in fact, much more unites me with soccer and with Liverpool and this whole discourse and language and all of this than actually uh, separates me from them. I do want to stop you really quick because did I hear you right in saying that you think Manchester United's problems are they don't spend enough money? Manchester United? No, no, no but, but spend wisely and they, they, I think they could, you know, I'm, I, look, I, I just think, look, um, you could also argue, and I, I understand that, you could argue that the retirement of someone like Sir Alex Ferguson with that run, which is singular, there is bound to be a downside. It just has to be. Uh, the 2013 championship already was sort of, you know, with a lot of chewing gum and, you know, it was a, a fading star. I mean, it just has to be. Uh, but, you know, again... Um, by virtue of the age we live in, um, uh, clubs uh, like United or all big clubs, Lakers or whatever are, uh, and you are talking to a fan again of the uh, affliction addiction state, there is no time here. You, there is no rebuilding. You've got to win quickly. And, and so um, uh, we spent terribly, um, uh, I mean, just think about it. Now, finally, Cavani is here, and he's now, I think, restoring at least the the the, the number seven shirt, which yeah. was the curse of the number seven shirt. Uh, Di Maria, uh, on and on. They were all horrible. They all came and got the great number seven shirt of Best and Riggs and Beckham. I'm sorry, Be Best and 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 Beckham, and of course Ronaldo. And uh, they were all horrible. Cavani at least has, uh, you know, uh, scored some important goals. And um, I'm hoping that, you know, we win the Europa League. And I would be very happy if we do, even though it's the B League. Right. Um, it's, and if we do, and then, you know, good things will happen. But uh, uh, it's been a rough, uh, you know, rough, rough couple of years, which of course means that the rest of the world just rejoices in my pain, in the, the pain of the bigs. In, in fact, everyone hates United because they were so, so big. Everyone hates the Yankees. Everyone hates the Lakers. Um, you know, it's, it's part of, 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 of this beautiful thing called sports. I want to wind down just a second here with uh, you have a memoir coming out, and, and we'll talk about this again. We'll have you back on when your memoir comes out. But I'm really intrigued by this because you weren't planning to write this. It's called The Passport as Home, Comfort in Rootlessness. And um, you wrote it because you literally had the time during the pandemic last year and I was just wondering if you could, obviously, we don't have a ton of time, but give our listeners who know of you as that interesting professor soccer guy a sense of, of what you're about in addition to that soccer guy. Well, I mean, the book would have never been written had it not been for the dread of, of, of COVID. I would have never had the time, but also would have never had 
the obsession to write it. It literally liberated me. And I just sat down and wrote this from scratch. And I had uh, a wonderful editor help me write because it's a, it's a book that is so different from all the other 20 some that I wrote, which are all very academic and, you know, with footnotes. And it, 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 this is a very different book, a very different style. But um, it was, uh, it's actually, and soccer plays a very, very large part in it because it was about my childhood and also beyond that. And so um, I, the first chapter is all about growing up as a little kid in Romania and being a huge fan of Stintza Timisoara. It was in the Western town of Timisoara, which is also of course known as Temeswar in Hungarian or Temesburg in German, multilingual uh, home. Uh, multi, it's a real Habsburg world uh, where I grew up trilingually. And, um, but there was this club, um, actually there was a rival one. And I was the, the my club was Stinza, which is the Romanian word for science. And it was actually renamed Politecnica later. And it was nothing more important than seeing Stinza beat the big, big Bucharest clubs that came down, namely the, the army club, um, which in, in the Soviet system is, is the SCSKA, and of course the secret police club, Dynamo. And they all came and of course, uh, Occasionally, Stinza won, and what was also happening that our best players immediately were stolen by and went to Bucharest to play for these two big clubs, which were the two dominant clubs. So this played a very important role. It tied me to my father, and uh, uh, um, the, the best memories of my life were with my father on various soccer grounds, first at Stinza, and then later on in Vienna. And then actually, even when we emigrated to the United States, my father actually transplanted his passion, although he never really got to understand baseball, but he understood that it was very important for me to acculturate. And he took me to Yankees games and it became, and again, I sat next to him and not only Yankees games, we also spent times in Randall Island uh, huh. to watch these wonderful European clubs like Benfica and and Milan and whatever come to play in New York and wow. this in this horrible stadium in the middle of the East River. Uh, by the way, the only English spoken was with a British accent. It was a completely foreign world. The world of soccer didn't exist in America. I mean, it literally just was not known. And we went to that. And so it was, it, it's a soccer and my father are to totally tied to this book, uh, just like uh, classical music. And so it's really um, soccer and the opera, which are uh, the world that uh, tied me to it. There's a chapter on the my first Champions League final in 1964, in May of 1964. It was the first international uh, game played in Vienna um, with, between Inter, uh, a rising Inter and a already declining Real. Real still had Pushkash and Di Stefano and of course Hento, but Inter had Mazzola, who scored two beautiful goals. Sandro Mazzola, of course, the son of um, uh, the great Vittorio Mazzola, who was killed in the Torino, the horrible Torino airplane crash. And so Mazzola won three to one. And I have this uh, chapter in there because it was, uh, I took my very first girlfriend to a day on a date and I took her to this game and it was about, that's what I write about. And it nice. was actually terrible because um, uh, I, I feel so guilty to this day. My father bought, finally got tickets for the two of us to go. 
and I prevailed upon him and that I loved Daphne so much and he <laughs> surrendered his ticket to give to his son to take this girl who had no idea who Real was, who Inter was, who Facchetti was, who Burgnich was, and these are great defenders or Inter, Mazzola, nothing. And uh, we broke up, I think, six weeks later. It was a t it's a terrible, but it's in the book. Um, and um, about this particular event in Vienna, um, about how soccer played a, or sports beyond, then also beyond soccer, but played a, such a key role in my life. And of course, in 1954, um, the, on the 4th of July, 1954, we listened on our Blaupunkt radio in Timisoara to the great Hungary-Germany match from the Wankdorfstadion zu Bern. And we hear the great announcer Sapeshi, uh, the Hungarian radio announcer who was legendary, uh, Sepeshi, George Sepeshi, George Sepeshi, uh, uh, broadcast this game and, of course, ultimately end up literally crying uh, after the goal by Helmut Rahn in the 83rd minute, which literally uh, changes Germany and ushers in the Wirtschaftswunder and basically establishes Germany as one of the great success stories of liberal democracy and of Western Europe and really makes it join the, the family of nations. And it destroys Hungarian football to this day from which it never recovers from this. Um, it, there is even evidence that it led to uh, the revolution uh, in 56, uh, two years later, um, the disenchantment of this. But I remember listening to this and my father actually uh, saying something, it's the first time I heard something about the United States of America. My father said, I, I, I sensed that my father was not at all upset about the, this loss. And even though we spoke Hungarian at home and I thought that he would be because the Hungarians lost, but I, he wasn't. And he said something like, look, um, someday you will learn that um, uh, both Hungarians and Germans did some very, very bad things to us and to your family uh, as Jews. And, uh, but the only thing that matters to you and the only thing that should matter to you is that today is the birthday of this country called the United States of America. And where I hope that one day you will actually go. And that's the first time I heard wow. United States of America mentioned. I was a five-year-old boy. And um, in this context, that this was the birthday of this country was the 4th of July. My father knew about the 4th of July. And uh, so that, that's, a, that's actually a recurring theme throughout the book. And in fact, the book ends with that also. Okay, fantastic. I, I can't wait to read it and, and talk to you about it because every conversation we have is, is fun for me. I hope it is for our listeners. I think it is. Uh, you might have been my most frequent guest on my podcast over the years, and I love having you as a recurring guest. I finally got out to Ann Arbor. It's been almost three years, Andy, if you could believe yes. it, since I came yes. out after World Cup 2018 and... Um, and had a wonderful weekend with you and your wife there for, it was for a uh, Man United Liverpool game at the Big House. First time I'd ever been to Ann Arbor, the Big House, on a very narrow field. 
uh, Jose was still the coach of United and they played a bunch of their scrubs and uh, I bumped into Klopp in the elevator of my hotel. First time I'd ever met the guy. And later on, two years later, I'd write a whole big magazine story about him after everything he'd done at Liverpool. But um, just a, a really fun weekend. And I don't know if they're going to continue doing those uh, ICC tournament games in the future. We'll see. Uh, I so hope because it was so wonderful to see those. Uh, we actually, United beat Real two or three years before that. Mm-hmm. One, and then actually a Chelsea uh, lost to Real. I went to that as well. And then this one was Liverpool and uh, Shakiri scored two amazing goals. That's right. Uh, Liverpool with an amazing scissor kick. Yep. He had an amazing scissor kick and uh, Liverpool won four, three to one or four to one. What I found interesting is that the entire stadium was completely red. I mean, the yeah. entire big house was full with 110,000 all red. It looked like Ohio State colors. <laughs> Ohio State had taken over the Michigan Stadium. Michigan Stadium. And it, was, it wasn't clear, you know, which red because it's a little bit different, but you can't tell. And what I found, however, interesting is that both teams chose to play with their away colors. Yeah. So United came out in blue and Liverpool in gray, uh, I which I thought was fascinating. And uh, it was a, a completely irrelevant game, but a, a wonderful, wonderful thing. And it was wonderful to have you. And uh, I wish you could come back again. Yeah. No, I can't wait until we can meet up again in person, whether it's here in New York or out in Ann Arbor. Andy Markovitz is longtime tenured professor at the University of Michigan. You should read all of his books, but if you're going to start, start off with Offside, Soccer and American Exceptionalism. Uh, There's lots of other good ones too, though. Andy, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank Andy Markovitz as well as producer and pundit Chris Whittingham. If you like the podcast, you could do me a huge favor and hit that subscribe button and provide a rating and a review. I'm back soon with another interview of someone from the soccer world. Be safe, everyone. See you next time.